promotional consideration for Growing Greater Philadelphia provided by Citizens Bank, Drexel University, and the General Building Contractors Association. This is the Growing Greater Philadelphia podcast, bringing you more of the interviews and stories from the Growing Greater Philadelphia radio program. Now, here is Matt Cabry. Tell us a little bit about Sam Ebert. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I am 25 years old, about to be 26 in March, and uh, I have had a lifelong passion for bicycles, working with my hands, design, and uh, the city that I'm from. And tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you live today, and where'd you go to high school and like elementary school, just because I know you're, you're a proud Philadelphian. I I grew up in the neighborhood of Roxborough, and I attended the Mequon School, which is in Conshohocken, uh, for elementary, really from pre-K through sixth grade. And I then, uh, after graduating, attended Germantown Friends School, GFS, in uh, Germantown. And that was where I really uh, started to cut my teeth with design, uh, art became less of a crafting experience and more of a making experience and um, less visual, more useful, more functional. And paired with my uh, ever-increasing passion for bicycles, uh, everything just sort of fell together. Bicycles are a wonderful piece of form and function. And probably in history, I can't think of a single other object that has been more of a blend of function, but also of design and beauty. Um, made famous mostly by Italian and French frame builders in the early uh, 20th century. That's great. Uh, going back to where you went to K through six, mm-hmm. most people probably have never even heard of Mequon, let yeah. alone the Mequon school. Yeah, class I, of 20. I absolutely know where it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been to Mequon. Yeah, yeah. you know, that was... That that's as part of the journey as as any piece of my life. Um, the love for the outdoors that it gave me, the uh, self reliance, the 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 okayness that I gained with, through getting my hands dirty constantly and building things in the woods, and by far some of the greatest uh, teachers that I'll ever have in my life. Shifting gears a little bit on you, tell me um, if you remember, which something tells me you will. Mm-hmm. What was your first bike? My first bike was a GT GTB, so that's uh, that's short for general track bike. It was a fixed gear bike that my brother in law gave me, and now this is not my first first bike, but this is the first one that totally inspired me. Um, it uses a uh, it was an aluminum bike and it's actually kind of crappy but it's a timeless frame it uses GT's patented triple triangle geometry so it looks it's very starkly different from most bike frames and uh, that was the bike that really put me into the deep end I didn't even know there was a patented triple triangle bike I know. frame. I know. Well, yeah, you got it right. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, so, but but I, I am curious, in part for the show and in part just yeah. as life. Uh, My real first bike. What was bike. your real first bike? How old were you? Do you remember when you learned how to ride? I do remember. I was, I had to be five or younger. Um, I was at my grandfather's house, my pop-pop and Mimi's house, and I was with my older sister, Kira. And she put me on a 10-speed, a white 10-speed steel. I can't remember the brand. 
it's probably one of my cousins, just something in Pop-Pop's garage. And she kind of just pushed me down the driveway and it happened. And it's probably one of my fondest memories with her, let alone my life. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was the first time I rode a bike without training wheels. And it's wonderful that it's with her. And you felt that, that freedom and that independence and that ability to go. Yeah. Coincidentally, uh, her son, Thomas, my nephew, uh, I, uh, pushed him off in sort of the same way and taught him how to ride a bike without, without training wheels. Nice. It's the whole circle of life thing. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful relationship that is shared with many members of my family. That's great. Mm -hmm. Tell me the first time you heard the word, and I'm not going to say it right, I don't think, junto. So I think th this takes me back to Mequon because in uh, fourth and fifth grade, I had teachers named Joan Rainier and Jerry. What is Jerry's last name? Well, Joan and Jerry. And they were history buffs. And that those two years, whenever we delved into American history, they went so richly into it. And uh, I imagine it was probably this time that I learned of Ben Franklin's Junto Club. I don't have a, a singular memory of it, but when we were sort of developing our brand mythology... Uh, for Junto Cycle Works. Um, and we're talking about our love for Philadelphia and the history and the connection to Ben Franklin and his pioneering of uh, uh, electronic science, essentially. Not pioneering, but he certainly was a catalyst, no pun intended. Um, or a lightning rod, how about that? Um, but when we did come across the Junto Club as Team Junto... Um, it made perfect sense. It, is, it was as if it had connected to something I always knew. And that was really your inspiration for where you guys are today. But I'm yeah. curious, uh, did you help name the company or, or, or uh, was it named already? Or do you remember sitting around? I know it's it's only been recent, but were you sitting around, uh, you know, kind of uh, in the shop or around a kitchen table saying, what, what should we call this thing? Well, yeah. So we actually... Um, had a whole different branding message initially, and uh, we decided it wasn't natural enough for us. So we pivoted, and we, over the course of a couple days, it was it was really quite funny. Um, we just brainstormed like stream of consciousness, probably over a thousand text messages exchanged with just weird words that we were throwing out there. Um, you know, diving into Philly's history from Joe Frazier to uh, just anybody, Rembrandt Peel, um, Peel family in general, uh, Andrew Wyeth. We, yep. we were going Eakins. all over the place. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And then cool. Brian, is he was sort of the one who, um, he, he's just a huge fan of Benjamin Franklin, knows a lot about him. And uh, he was sort of the one that, um, brought us down that road. Gotcha. And you mentioned Brian. So we're talking about Brian Powell, mm -hmm. who we had the privilege of speaking with. Tell us about that moment that you and Brian came together. Had you known him before or, or what was your first connection with Brian as it relates to Junto? I only knew of Brian. He was my mom's neighbor in Chestnut Hill. 
and uh, I babysat for his neighbor's kids, and I believe uh, he was one day just talking over his fence to to David, his neighbor, and was saying, you know, I've got this idea. It's it's a it involves bikes. Uh, I need a bike guy, and David was like, you should talk to uh, Kristen's son Sam who babysits for me. He knows, he seems to know a lot about bikes. And then I think Brian then connected with my mom and she was like, oh my gosh, you have to talk to Sam. He's obsessed with them. I'd love for him to to do something a little bit more interesting with bicycles rather than just crash them all the time. And, uh, <laughs> is that true? Did you crash your bikes a lot? I do crash a lot. <laughs> I take risks. Uh, I, I mountain bike mostly. Yeah, so gotcha. it's a little softer than the pavement. And, and, when was this, and what were you doing at the time uh, your mom and Brian, or Brian called you, or your mom said, hey, you got to meet this guy, Brian? I was working as a bicycle mechanic at that point, and my first call with Brian, right at this point, I was actually driving back from Leadville, Colorado, where I had served as race support for the Leadville 100. Um, I'm going to guess it's a bike event. Yeah, it's a 100-mile mountain bike race. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's at least 12,000 feet of elevation. So it's the air is thin. It's really competitive, really cool event. Um, uh, Leadville is a wonderful place as well. But yeah, so, you know. So you're driving back from Colorado and your mobile phone rings. I'm in the middle rings. of Kansas, yeah. Okay, in the middle of Kansas, your mobile phone rings, and it's this guy, Brian, who you, you kind of know he's calling, or? Uh, yeah, we, me, and, me and him had spoken. Um, he and I had spoken uh or sorry he and i had texted a little bit and made a plan to speak and yep he he called me up and i had no idea how big this was going to get yeah. um so tell us how that conversation flowed you pick up the phone and it's brian brian is an incredibly uh smart and charismatic talker and i had never really heard of anyone speaking about bikes the way he was because he didn't seem to fully understand what we were even getting into yet and he wanted to explore my opinion on e-bikes um which i didn't have a ton of experience with either but i knew everything there was to know about bicycles traditional bicycles not electric assist and we both i think were kind of impressed by the other and then when we sat down eventually to talk on Brian's porch, uh, that's when, you know, the, the the light bulbs really went off because um, we both realized how real this could be, how much we aligned. Um, Brian right there and then said, you know, you're, you're not a consultant to me. If this happens, you're a partner. And he has held to that... Uh, to the umpteenth degree he is he is very rare i think as far as it goes um with uh people of his age working with people mine my age and being a businessman who's fair and yep, reasonable exactly and, and, and certainly could use more people like that i think as the economy changes that's great uh and when was that do you remember was that like uh wow. september october time frame august time frame? that would have been august yeah. of 2016 so then what did you do august of 2016 you had this phone conversation you connect on brian's porch you have a kind of a connection and then yeah. you start to lay out your vision and take me up to what you did next and when you got on the electric assist bike 
I had ridden e-bikes by this point and worked on a few, but I, uh, I'm not an electrician. I'm not an engineer, really. I have engineering sensibilities, but uh, I didn't really know the true inner workings of e-bikes. And I think being sort of a purist cyclist in general was even maybe put off by them a little bit just out of um, the lack of understanding. And when Brian and I met, he showed me an e-bike that he had been riding that was of pretty poor quality. And to be honest, paired with his, uh, his charismatic talk, um, I, I should say the, the, the quality of this bike paired with how unlike anything I'd ever been through, uh, this opportunity he was presenting to me was, I kind of don't think I thought it was going to happen. He didn't seem to know a lot about bikes and that's why he was, you know, recruiting me and others. And, you know, he said things that no one has ever said to me, like, I'm going to go raise a bunch of money for this and we're going to make this happen. You're going to be a partner. Um, we, you know, we're going to, you're going to have to quit your job. And I, I don't think anyone can really just take that, you know, uh, to, for, for what it actually is right off the bat. I just met this guy, but he is absolutely held to every single thing. And, uh, I don't make that mistake with him anymore. He, he is a, uh, he's a doer, you know, a yep. go getter, go giver. So you have this passionate visionary. Yep. You share in his passion. You have, uh, Somewhat skeptical, but still very optimistic belief in this guy. Oh, yeah. Tell us uh, how you got your first bike. Like, like, how did you build a prototype? He was riding something, but you wanted to build something that ultimately became Junto Bike. Right. And and tell us how you got there and where the parts come from and how you assemble all this, what suppliers mm -hmm. you called. And, and then I want to get into a little bit of the technical stuff as well. Sure. So we needed a proof of concept, right? We needed to raise awareness and funding and most people don't know what an electric bike is bottom line the wonderful thing about electric bikes is that the second you get on one you know exactly what it is and it's awesome it makes you feel super strong i rode a bike here today i'm dressed for 45 degree weather it happens to be 70 degrees out in february somehow not a drop of sweat on me I can step into this uh, recording studio and be perfectly comfortable. That And that is the proof of concept. So the first bike had to illustrate that. So I took a frame. I found a frame that was close to the geometry. And we can, you know, talk about that more later. But I found a frame that was close to the geometry I wanted and uh, kitted it out with a uh, online purchased e-bike motor and battery and made a few uh, structural changes to it to, to compensate for the extra power essentially going through this frame. And uh, passed, I, I repainted it, rebranded it, passed that over to Brian. He shopped it around with some friends who were looking to get into something cool. And uh, we got funded and we got straight to work. We were already at work. I mean, I don't even want to think about how much time we've all put into this at this point. It's a good thing, but it's it 
40 hour weeks were not uh were not real at that point in time yeah we're Uh, talking 70 80 hour weeks yep yep and And, i and i wasn't i wasn't we weren't self-sufficient yet so brian is doing everything he can to facilitate me and mike our my colleague uh being able to do this at night essentially while we keep our day jobs yeah and that's another reason that this happened is is brian understood um yeah we're 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 young millennials fresh out of college we don't really have money to put into this but man do we have time and we're willing to do it so he just helped us let that happen time energy creativity yeah food uh, even you know you have passion you have a a dogged approach to what you're doing yeah um Sam, tell us a little bit about today Junto Bikes is working out of a shop in Kensington. That's right. That first bike that you were building, Mm -hmm. you got the frame, you ordered a pack online to hook up. Were you doing that out of your garage in East Falls or Roxborough, or were you always in Kensington? I was doing that out of my garage in East Falls, Um, the first first bike, that is. Shortly thereafter, uh, due to what Brian was able to stir up with that bike, we, we got our office. We've been there for a little over a year now. And, uh, um, we're actually expanding now. We're going to do some more warehouse space or going to, we're going to need some more warehouse space. And, uh, the uh, current office is is beautiful. It, it it's uh, Brian and I were talking about this today. It's part of our brand at this point. It is the old industrial Philly, the workshop of the world. It is a uh, it is an artifact of the the way things used to be, and uh, that's essential to us. That's great. Take us from when you uh, built that prototype <clears throat> in East Falls to when you moved into the Kensington shop. Is that a year? Is that a month? Uh, that was a couple months, about half a year probably. Yeah. About, yeah, about six months. And tell us a little bit more about where does the bike come from? Where's it assembled? How's it shipped? Things like that. Sure. So uh, kind of going back into the things that Brian was doing for us uh, prior to um, us be a, being a, a fully running operation, uh, he actually... Got me a Chinese visa and sent me over there. Um, and I connected with a few factories. I went through them. We wanted to make sure that we used an ethical factory. We wanted to make sure that we had a product that absolutely met our standards of quality. And um, we found one pretty quick. Uh, actually, a, a Taiwanese-owned factory in mainland China. And uh, we have a great relationship with them. We love hanging out with them when we're over there. And uh, they take good care of us, and we take good care of them. So it's that, that in itself is probably one of the most educational aspects of this whole operation for me. Because, uh, you know, uh, two years ago, if you asked me where I was going to be by this time, I would never have said, oh, I'm, I fly to China every three or four months and spend a few weeks there and, you know, I'm brushing up on Mandarin. Uh, so it's just been surreal. Take us back to that first trip, because here you're a 24-year-old, maybe just turned 25, and mm-hmm. you're climbing onto a plane to go to China yeah. to look for bikes, yep. bike frames, a mm-hmm. partner who can help manufacture bike frames. Yep. Uh, did you know where you were going? Did you have a list of vendors that you had prearranged appointments with? Or? Yep. So that's okay. exactly what happened. We uh, 
we had a consultant who pointed us in the general direction of where we should be looking. And we went through them starting in Taiwan and ending up in mainland China, uh, particularly the suburbs of Shanghai, so southern China. And culture shock is an understatement. Um, It is, you know, I think I once heard Anthony Bourdain say this, and it has become so so important to me, but you could spend your entire life as a Westerner in China, and you will never scratch the surface of that culture and that community. And uh, yeah, I, I adore that country. Yeah, that's and, cool. And I like going over there. So your first shop you went to, was mm-hmm. that it? You knew that was the frame, or did you have to go to three or four? We went, I went to about four. Yeah. And there was one that was... Uh, just too expensive. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. Um, didn't fit your profile. Yeah, there was yeah. one that didn't... Uh, a few of them didn't fit our profile. Uh, the one that ended up really working for us, it was the finer details that really impressed me personally. For instance, the orientation of the assembly lines being feng shui. And uh, the you know the, the east is is just rich with... Uh, traditional culture. Those societies are so much older than our own. And when you see it in action, when you see the culture working, it's uh, it's obviously foreign, but it is unlike anything we have here. So you want to be respectful of it. And um, the the factory we settled on, they are so good at teaching us about how we can do better with them and in our travels and work in China. And that is so important. So Sam Ebert, partner at Junto Bikes, a Philadelphia-based e-bike company with a shop in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. Talk with us a little bit, Sam, about um, the mechanics of it. Because when you look at a Junto bike, uh, you really can't notice anything dramatically different about it, with the exception of a slightly larger pack that sits on the crossbar. Uh, but how does that connect to the the gears on the rear tire and and the whole mechanics of propelling the vehicle, if you will, or the bike? Sure. So uh, I have to be careful how I say this because an e-bike is essentially a bicycle with a motor on it. And I say I have to be careful because it's not quite that simple. In fact, a big problem that the industry has is that a lot of brands will just sell the traditional bike that they've put a motor on. But we went about it very differently. We built our bike frame around a motor. So we really, uh, you know, the, the egg very much so came first in, in our uh, in our product. And uh, why that's important is because a traditional bike accounts for force of a rider, the exertion of a rider. Our bike accounts for that and the additional power of a motor. The way that our bike works is that there is no throttle. So this isn't a moped. This isn't an electric bicycle or a pedelec. You hop on the bike just like you would a regular bike. And as you pedal, the force you exert is uh, measured by what we call a torque sensor 
at your feet and that sends a message to the motor and tells it to add power in correlation with your own effort so this is why it's called pedal assist so as you are pedaling if you're pedaling softly you get a little assistance if you come to a hill and you need to kind of crank up your cadence and your output the motor will mimic that and the, the end result is a very attached intuitive ride like a traditional bicycle but you feel super strong um one of the reasons we opted to to not use throttles on our bike is because of this detachment that they they spur uh it's like sort of like driving manual versus automatic there's a, a certain level of concentration and awareness that comes with a more involved operation and the beauty of e-bikes versus mopeds and other alternative vehicles is that they are regulated as bicycles so they op they can operate on bicycle trails and paths why would we why would we try and corrupt that with a throttle you know we want we want to be respectful of these spaces as much as we want to take advantage of them and can we control the amount of torque that is ultimately released or not released? You can, yeah. So you have several modes um, ranging in what we call uh, levels of assistance, and they uh, range from no assistance whatsoever, pedal the bike just fine, even if the battery's dead, it's just a regular bike, and then um, in increments of 20% additional power you can go up to doubling your output up to uh, around 500 watts of energy, which to put in perspective, a Tour de France athlete averages somewhere in the 300 watt wow. range for the course of the Tour de France. So, so 500, you're cruising. You're cruising and you feel, you feel mighty strong. Excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to shift it a little bit. Sure. Um, Brian's an old guy from Philadelphia who's passionate. Yeah. How old's Mike? Mike is a year older than me. Okay. Yeah. And also a passionate Philadelphian. Oh, yeah. So you and Mike and Brian uh, and some of your other partners and investors, I suspect, that are maybe behind the curtain a little bit more than you three are, mm -hmm. are helping to build this company, Junto Bikes, yep. Philadelphia-based e-bike company, uh, shop in Kensington neighborhood. Um Talk with us a little bit about your experience as a millennial mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. You grew up here. What are you experiencing as a, one as a millennial, but also as a millennial who's in a startup community? Sure. So prior to Brian, I had always heard that Philadelphia was a desert of entrepreneurs, that it was hard to make it happen here in a new and uncharted way. Uh, and that, uh, you know, like when I was in high school, the, the cool stuff that I was paying attention to were, was happening out West or in Brooklyn off of, out of Manhattan. And, uh, I would say that recently, I think that has totally flipped itself on its head. Philadelphia 100% has something extremely unique and awesome going on and, there is an incredible maker community here. Uh, there's a lot of operations that are are spurring uh, design, manufacturing, fabrication, uh, uh, coding, app app uh, creation, and those are going to be our de defining characteristics as we proceed as a city. 
And um, not to give millennials all the credit, but I certainly think that is a realm of study that is more uh, readily accessible by my generation. I was just talking to uh, so I was talking to someone the other day, and their child came in the room and showed off a bunch of toys they had three D printed, and that is that is the future. Uh, what a classic example as well. Just like when we were kids, we were printing 3D things out of our little 3D printers. Right. right yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. But, but I I, um, I love that perspective that you shared of Philadelphia as being a place creating an environment that actually welcomes an entrepreneurial spirit where, mm-hmm. you know, in fairness, at first you may not have seen that or felt that. But when you're exposed to it and you walk in those circles, you start to realize that not only is it here, but it's it's robust and it's in Infectious and it's welcoming. Um, and I want to touch on that a little bit more just for a second. Um, where is the bicycle capital of the world, if there is such a thing? I suspect it's in Europe, but I don't want to just assume that. Like, is it Denmark or is it Austria? Yeah, it's, it's Europe and you're in the ballpark. Uh, Danes and uh, uh, the Dutch, they, they've they really got it going on. Um Copenhagen, I believe, is yeah. probably the most famous city for uh, its use of, of bicycles of and e-bikes yep. and whatnot. Yep. And I'll tell you why I ask. Uh, let's pretend you go to a conference mm-hmm. on e-bikes. Sure. And you're in Europe or you're in South America or you're in Asia or maybe you're on the West Coast and uh, you're talking with... Uh, another very either a really experienced bike manufacturer from Europe or an entrepreneur from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um and and they're you know surprised to hear about this little company in Philadelphia who's making e-bikes. What do you say to them? Why Philadelphia? So I I really like this question because not only is it an, uh, is it a question that I do get asked, um, but I like answering it because I think that people need to. That a lot of people have a have a misunderstanding of what Philadelphia offers to a cyclist. Um, I hope I don't butcher this statistic, but there are actually more bicycle commuters in Philadelphia than any other major city in the U.S. Not necessarily per capita, but the raw population of people who commute by bicycle to work is the greatest in the U.S. Um, Philly is obviously famous for its uh, European DNA in terms of its its layout. Um, but that being said, when DeWitt Clinton uh, conscripted or contracted Manhattan, he said, I want it to be like Philadelphia, but I want all the streets and avenues to be twice as wide. And Manhattan is a city that is handling the uh, pressures of modernity and industry a little bit better than Philadelphia, at least infrastructurally. But that all being said, when I first started venturing out of my neighborhood and all the way downtown, I started working at a bike shop in South Philly when I was 14, and I was riding down there every day. It was the one-way streets. It was the... uh, uh, the 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 historic uh, buildings. The I used to love riding down Delancey Street because you feel like you're in Paris. It it was it was all of these things that made Philadelphia. Yes, maybe not the best city to get around, but man, was it just one of the most magical cities to ride through. 
and the unexpected cobblestone street that you come upon. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> which yeah. is great. Not to mention the Wistahicken, yeah. the Forbidden Trail, but or Forbidden Drive. But uh, yeah, people don't really realize this, but we are in a massive city with, uh, with an incredible urban population and an incredible city center. But we also have access to some of the best mountain biking trails that you can possibly get to on the East Coast. And that's such a gift. And it's one of the things, actually, that sets Greater Philadelphia apart from other metropolitan areas. Absolutely. And that is an attraction for millennials. Mm-hmm. It's walkable, it's affordable, yep. it's bikeable. Um, and you can hit the mountains, you can hit the beaches all within about an hour yeah. uh, if you wanted to leave Greater yeah. Philadelphia uh, to enjoy some of those other amenities. I- and I'm going to go back to a mechanical thing real quick. Yeah. Talk with us a little bit about how the bike ships and how easy it is for a millennial or anybody for that matter. It could be a, I'm going to be stereotypical here and say it's a 27 year old girl mm-hmm. or it's a 68 year old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, how easy is it for them to assemble this when they get it? So that's a really good question. I'm glad you brought it up. The, the, when, when you order a Junto, it arrives to your door in probably the biggest box that you'll have delivered by UPS, and that's on purpose. Uh, we designed this box ourselves, and we wanted people to have to assemble their bike as little as possible. That's good for our quality control. It's good for safety of the consumer and it's really nice to just get a bike and start riding it. And uh, our box is essentially as big as it can possibly be under FedEx and UPS guidelines. And we used up every single inch of it to do so. Um, When you do get your bike, the uh, front wheel will be off, uh, as will one of the pedals. There, the other pedal will be installed. And the reason we keep one on and one off is that uh, one pedal, the non-drive side, is reverse threaded. And people mess it up a lot. So we uh, keep the drive side pedal off and you get to install that yourself, put your front wheel on, and you're riding. Your handlebars are already in the right position. And uh, paired with what I think is a really good sizing system that we've come up with, the bike should be instantly comfortable and instantly rideable. Excellent. Uh, let's think down the road a little bit. Mm-hmm. Two years from now, three years from now, where is Junto Bike? I think in two or three years that Junto will be less of a bike company and we will have fully assumed our identity as a mobility company. We are... Uh, we are we're here for Philadelphia. We are here for all urban populations and metropoli. That's a word. I think so. Um, we're, we're here for Philly, and we're here for any city that can bear any any semblance to it. Because we need to change the way we get from point A to point B, and we need to uh we need to reward people who are brave enough to do that who are brave enough to leave the car at home and set out on an e-bike and get to and from work because they're doing something for the planet they're doing something for other people on the road people who maybe can't ride bicycles or people who are dependent on a car for work 
they're freeing up infrastructure. They're they're being less harmful to our infrastructure, which is a savings for everybody. They're going to save money themselves because it's certainly cheaper to own an e-bike than a car. And, uh, you know, it, what it will really come down to is something we're working on right now. It's a little secretive, but what we will see in the next few years is most certainly a revolution in how we interact with our gadgets and objects. It's already happening. Smartphones are a mainstay. And uh, when you have a city that is connected, you sort of start to find little efficiencies in it. If you know that 10,000 people commute along these roads every day and avoid others, they probably sense they're, they're safe on that road. Maybe they're deserving of a bike path on that road. Um, maybe uh, you should put a super block or a sort of shopping center there that caters to their needs. So, you know, the biggest problem I have driving through the city and why I hate driving through the city is sometimes I want to stop. I want to go check out a store. I want to go check out um, some band playing on the sidewalk. And you're telling me I have to go find a parking spot to do that? So connecting the behavior patterns of bicyclists, whether they're e-bikes or not, Mm -hmm. and building a web of services and connections Mm -hmm. uh, around that behavior, if you will. Sounds interesting. Yeah. That's great. And there's a conversation, you know, going on right now. And it's, it's about our resources. It's about our time. It's about our food, our water, our air quality, um, our climate. And it sounds pretty doomsday-ish and it sounds bad, but I am thinking incredibly optimistically about this. I feel good and hopeful about this because there are people, and I'd like to say ourselves included, that are are working to use technology, to use uh, uh, the internet and connectivity and whatnot to really create an ecosystem that, that penny pinches in, on all these fronts and will allow us to uh, keep living in harmony. Sam Ebert, thanks for joining us. You were fantastic. Thank you. Hey, this segment of Growing Greater Philadelphia is brought to us by Independence Blue Cross. They're a proud sponsor of Select Greater Philadelphia. Independence Blue Cross is the largest health insurer of the Philadelphia region, serving more than 2.5 million people locally and 8.5 million people in 23 states and Washington, D.C. You can learn more about Independence Blue Cross at ibx.com. Check out all of our podcasts and tune in Friday mornings, 5 a.m. on Talk Radio 1210 WPA. Thanks so much for listening to Growing Greater Philadelphia.